Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Sam Quinones again. Sam, how are you doing? Not bad, Josh. How about you? I'm very good. Uh, and the listeners didn't hear the last couple of minutes we were talking about writing and we were talking about addiction and we were, and it was just jumping right into where we were about a week or two ago, a week ago. And you know, if you don't mind my reviewing a bit, we talked about addiction and your latest book is on fentanyl and meth and you've written about opiates. But quickly, we were talking about, I, I think it's fair to say, and tell me if you see it differently, American society these days is really, I mean, one of the things you talked about a lot was the supply, this more supply than ever. I'd said it's maybe these places in Mexico are like a corporation. You said it's not, it may have similar effects, but there's this, how do we, if people are on the cell phones, how do we get it, through, get it to them through cell phones? And yes, in some regards, fentanyl and meth are unique. In some regards, they fit into gambling, pornography, games that keep you coming back, social media, alcohol, tobacco. And the supply seems, it feels like one, one of the reasons why your books are so poignant is that even if someone isn't themselves connected to someone who's doing math, I think, one, I think most people are in this country, it seems like. Certainly, I, it's the case with me, not meth, but opiates. But I think we're all facing it. It seems like this is the culture that we're yeah. in, is a supply. And how do we get it so the person, we, we make them crave it. And when we satisfy the craving, we re-crave them. We have the, the, the dose in a sense, or the, yes, I have no problem in seeing connections between on one end of the spectrum, the lesser potent stuff like fat and sugar and chicken nuggets and social media and gambling and, and pornography. And it, as you get towards the other end of the spectrum, meth and heroin and cocaine and, and all the drugs of abuse, which are unique in their effect on the brain, but they're not unique and that they're all hitting similar parts of, of the brain, just not with the same wallop. You know what I mean? It's not, and, and of course, opioids are way at the far end of all that, as we've found in the last 25 years, <laughs> but which we already knew, really. But yeah, it seems to me that in the same way that traffickers try to make their drugs and dealers try to make their drugs as easy to get to, given the problems of the law and, and the fact that it's illegal and all that kind of stuff, which is a major hindrance to why people don't use more. The drug that really lands people in jail more than any other is alcohol. Mm -hmm. It's not cocaine or heroin or that stuff. And But the, I think that as long as you are involved in a business in which you perceive that your profit is connected to the way in which your product hits the brain and you may understand neuro neuroscience or you may not understand it at all but you have this kind of gut feeling like this is true then you are going to do your utmost to to make that stuff as available and easy to buy as possible which is why for example you have fast food outlets on every yeah. off-ramp and every major street corner and uh, soda is 
So the soda companies battle mightily over space in the 7-Elevens and in the supermarkets. They understand the idea that is now very common in behavioral economics of the ease of procuration, of the ease, the lack of friction. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a book now written by two guys, uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, called Nudge. Now, they wrote this book 12 years ago, I think it was, and now it's just come out. And so I'm reading the second uh, edition, and it's very interesting. I studied economics in, at Berkeley in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and it was a drab way of studying this very vital topic of how people choose and that kind of thing. And since then, I'm envious of people studying economics today because there's so much more included in, in what an economist needs to understand. The neuroscience of, of consumer choice is huge. Mm-hmm. It's a very important part of that whole thing. And, and uh, making things easy and the frictionless uh, choice and that kind of thing, all of this is, is so important. And it was never really discussed when I was uh, uh, studying economics. Uh, um, and I think that's really why I ended my economics studies and thinking, I don't know what exactly I learned, but it didn't seem to re- correspond to reality. Nowadays, if you look, if you think about how traffickers, but also major corporations, wh- whether they know this or not, they act. And so the result is the same to, mm-hmm. to make it so easy <clears throat> for us to make these decisions and keep on using up world resources when it's completely unnecessary to me this and and or in buying stuff that that hits the brain and so they and they make it a little bit more powerful uh, effect on the brain each they're always studying ways of doing that it seems to me and so i just don't see i see the as they said in the book the sinaloa drug cartel takes its place along the same continuum that starts with the facebook's engineer and the the fast food and soda manufacturer and the casino designer and the pornographer et cetera et cetera and you lead out and you get out to this far extreme which were the guys from Culiacan, Sinaloa, and Badiraguato, Sinaloa, and into uh, Michoacan and other places who are just making this stuff. And again, I don't believe that most people who are producing this stuff understand a lot of this. They're just acting as in the way the free market dictates, making money, making stuff that people want to buy and don't really care about the moral morality of it all. But nevertheless, the aggregate, the, the macro result is the same, similar anyway. I would bet that they understand it just as well or better. It's, they might not express it in a theoretical framework yeah, to get a right. peer-reviewed paper, but I would bet that they understand it possibly better. It's, it's entirely possible. I've met some folks who I'm quite clear don't have a clue, but okay. uh, nevertheless, I, I also think that, yeah, there are some folks, by, I think a guy to, interesting to study, uh, if we knew more about him, would be a guy, and I can't remember if I mentioned him the last time, Nacho Coronel. Hmm. Nacho Coronel was really the vision, the meth visionary of the Sinaloa drug cartel. He was from this uh, small uh, town of Tamasula, Durango, up in the hills up there. I think it was Tamasula. Anyway, he was his uh, cousin is married to Chapo Guzman, so it's part of this kind of connection that seems to exist. But among all these these Sinaloan cartel guys, in one way or another, eventually you get to some kind of connections between them all. Um, anyway, he was the meth visionary he was the one and i don't know how we did i don't know if anybody actually knows how this happened but he early on began to see the future in terms of making a drug in a lab 
mm-hmm. and then industrializing it. And then he was also, I think, very aware that eventually the Mexican government would crack down on the precursor to the way they made methamphetamine, the essential precursor, which is a chemical uh, called ephedrine. He saw that and he began to prepare for that time when that happened. And as I talk about in the book, the, the, the first lab that a few of the DEA guys that I talked to saw that exploded, actually, it was poorly run. They were just figuring it all out. That was not made with ephedrine and was a startling fact to those DEA agents it was Nacho Coronel's lab that blew up in the little town of Tlajomolco de Zuniga, just south of Guadalajara, which is where he had his base of operations. He was not in the hills of Culiacan or Durango. He was in in Guadalajara, where you could get chemicals, where you could get the the know-how, the expertise, the chemists and whatnot. That guy understood. Now, he was um, killed in a firefight with soldiers in 2010. And after that, the meth industry just both exploded and fragmented, maybe both. Yes. And so he he was like this, but he was the guy who saw it all early on. Mm -hmm. And like one of these folks, maybe, and I don't know, Steve Jobs, I don't know who you want to compare him to. Um, uh, short well, guy, there's only photographs yeah. existing of him, but he's just one of these guys, Nacho Coronel, an interesting fella. I wish he was one notable for the fact that we know very little about him. Only two photographs exist of him, but to everybody I've talked to said that was the guy who figured it out before everybody else. And then everybody else just jumped on his bandwagon. And I remember reading about this and thinking there, is it, in principle, opium makes you feel good. I've never experienced it, so I don't know. But yeah. is fentanyl and these other meths, is it pleasurable? Like the manufacturers, do they care if it's pleasurable? They just care if it comes no, back. No, what's interesting about fentanyl is it, the addicts don't really like fentanyl. Fentanyl is, is a problem for street addicts for a couple of reasons. One, of course, it's deadly. And in their more lucid moments, they know that. But number two, fentanyl is very quick acting. That's what makes it such a great, you come in and out very quickly. And when you leave, you're not, you don't have, like when you're on the operating table, the anesthesiologists are very well versed on this, know how to bring you down and into it and then out of it very quickly with just little um, differences in the, in, the, in the fentanyl. And But that is the essence of fentanyl. You come in and out very quickly. But that means from an addict's perspective, that's not good. You, then you're left wanting more. So you may end up buying more times in a day than you ever did when you were on fentanyl, even pain pills, perhaps. It's because of the nature. And, and my understanding is talking with a few folks about this. I, I guess it depends on the individual. Some folks I've talked to don't, don't really appreciate the high. They don't like the high as much as they like it from what they were, they were able to get from heroin. But see, that's the whole point. The traffickers in Mexico don't give a damn about that. They just know these people will use it mm-hmm. if we if they will get they will they'll take it and they'll be happy and they'll shut up and that's what's happened. They there's no reason for them for any addict on the street to be uh, you know preferring fentanyl. There is euphoria is pretty good apparently, but in the combination between a comparison between heroin and fentanyl. Heroin being less deadly, amazingly so. It's hard to imagine that idea, but it is true. And lasting longer, well, I think they would opt for heroin and the, the high too. It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm comparing it with all these other things that 
that we talked about that are also people also addicted to because Facebook, you said Steve Jobs. And I was like, Steve Jobs was, they have this walled garden where they try to lock you in, but Facebook is like, they want to hook you that little red dot, you know, now I've said it. And now a bunch of people just stop listening because they're like, Oh, maybe I should check my message. Cause they thought of that red dot that says they have messages and all these other things to hook you in and keep you in. And then there's all these like kids committing suicide because they use it so much in the social media. Like it makes you miserable. And people are always like, Josh, I, I use it to keep in touch with my family. I'm like, it keeps you away from your family. Sure. Flying especially is people think it, it gives you this hit of going someplace, but you don't explore where you are. And so you have to fly and you can't just bike somewhere. You can't just right. like, I, people are like, oh, I want to go explore nature. I'm like, and I ask them, can you identify any trees around your neighborhood and what kind of birds live in them? There's a bit yeah. of nature there. It's right there. And all these things they separate you. Gambling, they separates you from your money. It, it's all about, if, if very quickly, this was my, you know, revelation that came to me. It was not something I understood initially, but when, whenever you're talking about opioids, but really whenever you're talking about addiction to anything, you are getting into the issue of isolation. Um, yeah. It almost never is about being with other people. It's about it's if it is, it's always people who can get you um, your fix better, whether um, it's in a gambling casino or a meth house or whatever. So to me, that's always and I think that has to do with the the brain chemistry just uh, being taken over. And so that is the only you don't one guy, one one cop told me one time, you never have a relationship with anybody else if you have a relationship with heroin. All the other relationships are secondary, tertiary, perhaps. And they're just not that important. What matters most is and, and is getting the dope, and that's it. And I think I've seen it firsthand with gambling. I've seen it firsthand with, we're not firsthand necessarily, but certainly with social media. Certain people I've met have been frighteningly obsessed with that stuff. So you do get to that point. I don't think you get to that point quite as easily as you do with, say, opioids and what have you, but it's all about isolation. That's what addiction, almost the definition is. And that's why community is the, is the antidote, I've always said. And, and, and that's why the idea of thinking that the least of us grew, that concept in my mind grew from the idea that what we most need to understand is that we are as weak as the fo- folks around us. We are as defenseless as the people around us. And it, it would help if we were kind of more in connection with those folks and, and they with us so that we could provide these bulwarks to that kind of stuff. Yeah, it feels, I'm hearing idea. also in your voice, something that I certainly feel is this helplessness of, it's just going on. You're talking about what feels like in many ways, maybe not, maybe I'm overstating it, but is this is American, it's a large part of American culture is how do we deliver more messages. I remember when I, my first company that I started during grad school was an advertising company. I had this idea for this medium to show motion pictures to subway riders. Yeah. And they were like, oh, captive audience. That's great. And that always sat funny with me. Like it's worth more to you because they can't get away. And the biggest advertisers were, oh, we had a lot of big advertisers. The Coke was a big advertiser with us and they have a lot of different products that are just it's everywhere. Yeah. That's like one of the most recognizable things that you know, kids can recognize how many logos, but not any plants. Oh yeah. Oh, and, right. 
Sure. Like we're watching it happen around us. And there's, it's hard not to ask, like, what can we do? You talked about small things and the, the guy with the community center and, and he was making things work and things like that are what works. I, I, I just think that part of it may have come from my experience as a writing instructor years ago. I gave writing workshops in Los Angeles at East LA Public Library for about five years Four years, I think it was actually about two a year. So I think we did nine eventually. And one of the things that very quickly became clear to me, and I structured the workshops this way, this way is by focusing on the small story. People would always come to the workshop and say, I want to write a book. I've got these great stories and everything. And I would say, yeah. But if you do that, it's like walking up a 10,000-foot mountain. You could start here and you start walking and in two hours, five hours, you'll feel no closer to the top of that mountain. So the idea is we need that feeling of having accomplished something and having moved forward and that kind of thing. The idea is instead of writing a book about your life, write one story, make it four pages, no more than four pages, let's say, maybe 1,200 words, 1,000 words, maybe something like that. And have a beginning, middle, and an end, an end. And within this workshop, we're going to take those stories. We're going to rewrite them, and I'm going to edit them, and I'm going to you're going to rewrite them again. And there's it's a process, and you get to a much better when you get to one story well told, well done. It means more than all the intentions of writing an enormous book that you'll never write because it's just too difficult. You've never done anything like that. Once you get a few of those stories under your belt, you've got a few of them in the hopper and you're like, oh, you know what? I feel like I can accomplish this. There's, a, there's an energy and an enthusiasm. And then with the enthusiasm comes a creativity and an inspiration that will be very quickly dissipated if you are thinking, I'm going to write a book, 250, 300 page book. I've never written one before, but I just know that my story is worth it. And so I, I, my spiel to them was don't write a book. Put that idea way in the back of your mind. Don't act on it right now. Let's just work on one story. And I would tell this, I, I did this to a lot of prison inmates as well. I used to do lots of in interviews with prison inmates, primarily Latino gang members from Los Angeles is where I was headed with this. And I would tell them that. Now, one guy, one guy in particular was able to follow up on that. I've got a, it's a fascinating story, but uh, a guy was a triple lifer. He had killed three people, including strangled to death his very cellmate in a jail in San Bernardino. Okay. And he was now facing the murder of uh, the death penalty case. And he had access. The reason he was able to do what I suggested he do is because he had access 35 hours a week to a law library and with that, a computer. So he could sit and write and type where well, the other guys were writing with pencil on, on yellow paper. So anyway, he was able to, and we, he wrote, I, he would send me the stories and I would take these stories. Some of them were not even a page long. And I would say, okay, yeah, more on this, less on this. Let's write about some of the neighborhoods, the neighbors in, your, in, this, in this place you grew up near Los Angeles, all that kind of stuff. And little by little, he put together this magnificent, I'm going to try to get it published. That may be my next project, in fact. Magnificent, too long, but nevertheless, a magnificent life story. 
growing up in this small neighborhood as a, just a kid, very dysfunctional mother and family. And then most of his brothers going to prison and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's a long story. I don't want to get into it. But the point I'm trying to make is he did that by taking a one story at a time. Now, years later, because he had access for a long time to a law library and a computer, making it a whole lot more easy to write this story or write his story through a variety of small, a bunch, dozens and dozens of smaller stories from one day. And we would have these conversations. He would call me and I would say, well, he wrote this one story about how he made a burrito for his friend in a cell up on the next tier. And he sent the guy the burrito wrapped in plastic, very carefully wrapped in plastic through the sewer, a fishing line. So the guy gets his burrito and they sit there and they eat it together through the vent. They're talking to each other through this vent in which they can communicate. Those kinds of stories, that's just one story. It's like this amazing moment in the life of an inmate. But to me, this is part of the whole point. How does he get to a book? By one tiny story after another. That's it. That's the only way. That's the only way you achieve anything powerful and lasting and positive. The opposite is where we get into trouble, where we want some big magic answer. We want one pill to solve all our pain problems. Look where that got us. You know what I mean? It's just, to me, this has been the overriding theme of my life last 12, 15 years or so, both with the story writing and then, of course, the opioid. It all gets back to that whole idea of taking small steps, small steps towards a larger goal, not worrying if you're not there initially. What drugs and this other stuff that we've been talking about want you to do is want it immediately, all of it, self-gratification, immediate. got to have this, got to feel like I'm saving the world. Oh, if I'm not feeling I'm saving the world, then I, oh, that must be, I, I need to feel that virtue. I need to feel that nobility or whatever. No, no, you don't need that. You just start writing your own story and doing it in small steps. That's what I've told these guys. And uh, this one fellow with this um, unbelievable, really powerful book, I think, is just a, like the end example of that whole, uh, n- nobody else has had the opportunity nor the time, frankly, which he's got an entire lifetime ahead of him facing has had the time or the ability to do that. And now it's been, he's in general population again. He is no longer under trial. He's writing by hand the stuff and he sends me the stories by hand. But the whole idea is he was able to do that little by little. It just seems to me so powerful, such a powerful thing, but we just don't value it because we're told we need everything right now. I'm trying to, say, I'm trying to tell how far out you're ex- extrapolating or describing that. Because when you say, it sounds like you're both describing, you're describing a situation one story in detail, one, you're doing what you're saying. And I'm reading or I'm hearing also that this is the pro- one of the problems with society that's driving people to these things. It's life isn't satisfying if your measure of success is fixing all the world's problems or starting right. some going IPO. And so if you're never satisfied all the time and something does make you feel satisfied, then this thing starts getting more and more appealing. And that I'm saying as if it was, I'm talking about fentanyl, but actually any of these addictive things give yes. you a feeling of reward. That is then- overwhelming. That is all of a sudden you've got all of it. You never thought you could ever feel so good. And, and then of course it dies, it, it fades immediately. And all of a sudden, oh my God, I've got to get back to that point. Whereas if you just say, I don't need to feel like I'm king of the world. One guy says, if you feel like you're king of the world and the president of everything, 
And I thought, I think one of the things about my life that I'm particularly happy about is that, that I have just focused on my, on this kind of small steps and, and work and, and feel like even when the book comes out, a book comes out, it took me three years to write. I'm very happy it's out. It's been this feeling like, oh yeah, now I can actually just sit there and not do anything and not think about anything. But it's not something I'm always wanting to write another story. Mm-hmm. It's a, a consuming passion. And maybe, who knows, maybe there's an, an elements of addiction in it. I don't know. It's certainly possible. But it's this idea that even if I don't win a prize or a Pulitzer or anything like that, I don't mind. I just love the process of writing stories, and particularly when it seems like they mean things to people. And I've found that that's one of the beauties, frankly, of social media. People can harangue you and, and attack you, but they can also say, wow, this changed my life, or I changed my m- medical practice because I read your book. And, and I've got a number of those. And it's just thrilling and, and very satisfying and makes me feel like, okay, this is worth it. So along with describing a source of the problem is also a way out is, is through at the low level, it's to give people small things to, to look at the next step, what next day. And at the high level, it's to enjoy the process, to, to change or, or bring out cultural values of enjoying the process of, of enjoying I think so. I think so. Yeah. And also what, what I also felt though, was each time after I, getting back to my writing workshops, each time after every workshop, I wanted people to take a moment and luxuriate in the, what they had achieved. And so we would do these book presentations and we did nine of these. So there was nine book. For, and I, I can tell you that after each one, the writers, after going, going through a lot of agony and just, oh, man, Sammy, he won't let me put an adjective in there. Damn it. I don't need to put some adjective. Now I'm like, Sam, no, cut that damn adjective. Damn it. And uh, rewrite it again and then uh, embrace the red. That was my theme. Embrace the red. If there's no red on your, uh, uh, me correcting your, then it's, it means that I, I, it's so bad that I couldn't possibly think of what, <laughs> what, what could be done to improve it. So you don't want that. You want to embrace the, all that kind of stuff. And they, finally get to a point where the story actually is reading really well. And we have this book presentation and it's wonderful. All these people come and give them a little bit of time where they say, damn it, this was worth it. All that crap that Sam was giving me, it was all worth it. And I, that is something to take. It's an important thing to say, to step back and, and, and be quiet and just be happy that you've achieved something. And it's a small thing. One book doesn't really matter too much, but or one story doesn't matter too much or whatever, but it does mean a lot to this person that and it helps that person internalize that that desire a little bit more or foster that or nurture that desire is what I mean. So it, to me, that's it's the moment where you have achieved something, you stop and you say, Yeah, good job. Tomorrow I'm gonna get to something else. A week from now, I'll be on something else, whatever. But for the moment, I'm going to sit here and go, yeah, man, nicely done. And that's what the book presentations were, were like, were about. It's a totally them. different set of emotions than the addiction emotions. Oh, yeah. It's a fulfillment that you get from achieving. And I think frequently in our community, in our society, we spend way too much telling time telling kids how wonderful they are for no reason, for not having achieved anything. And kids know this. They know it's a scam. They don't feel 
I think I'm very convinced they don't feel like they actually that this is valid or that, that they actually achieved and they earned it. It doesn't mean you should be telling kids what a disaster you are all the time. People thrive on positive feedback and, and encouragement. It's very important. No doubt about it, but it's, but encouragement or praise without any value, without anything earned, I think in time, people become cynical. And then they, they also expect that it's like in an in inflation or an addiction in itself. I expect something to be told I'm wonderful, whether I've done anything at all or not. You know. And I often indulge myself in asking, and I bet listeners are thinking of this too, what's working with a triple murder? Are you in the same room at the same time? Yeah. In the same room, no, because he is always behind glass. And he doesn't, well, at the mo- at the time, he was not getting, getting personal visits. He was getting behind the glass visits. So he's an interesting man. He was horribly abused. The big question is, how much of this abuse do I, do I cut from the book? Because there's too much of it. It's sadistic. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want that. And at the time, had the state stepped in in some meaningful way, we could have saved uh, ourselves an enormous amount of money. And we waited until he had killed three people to give him all the resources. Like he got uh, 35 hours of law library, uh, I believe two attorneys and a detective to work on his case. Once he'd killed three people as a death penalty case because of that in California, that's what you get. Now, it seems to me a, a little bit of uh, a more intense social work when he was a kid might have saved everybody a whole lot of misery and grief. He's a guy who's been incarcerated m- m- way more than most uh, half of his life. He's uh, got uh, a lot of OCD, cleans his, his house, as they say, many times a day, washes his hands 30 times a day. That's why he killed his cellmate, because his cellmate was, he said, disgusting, didn't shower, had dandruff, bad breath. What else? Anyway, that was the reason. Mm-hmm. But I would say that he's also very much more articulate than a lot of the guys I've met. Not very well educated, but nevertheless more articulate. And I think he has improved his writing substantially because he's written so much. He wrote a 199,000 word manuscript. It was way too long mm-hmm. to be published. But nevertheless, there was a lot of writing for him. And, and so, yeah, he almost every a few weeks, uh, I mean, when I was my book had come out, I didn't have time. I had to refuse his phone calls, but mm-hmm. his calls collect or his he calls collect, basically. And so he was, but yeah, interesting guy. And he's, I, I think his book may be powerful because we're so focused now and rightly so on what value we get from incarceration. Mm-hmm. I think there are there is value to it, most certainly. I'm not Norman Mailer here. I'm not arguing this guy needs to be let free, okay? I'm saying he is where he del- should be, mm-hmm. given what he's done. On the other hand, we might have saved ourselves a lot of grief, and him too, had there been a little bit more action back when he was nine, instead of waiting till he killed po- four, three people. Now, yeah, it was, it was a strict. He's very sane, and yet... He speaks very, very, a very articulate guy. And yet after he killed the guy in his cell in San Bernardino prison, I mean, San Bernardino jail, county jail, he literally propped him up, up against the bed on the lower bunk 
and pretended to play chess and talk with him and, and all that for 24 hours. I'm not sure what he said. I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I was so sick of this guy. I just, he put some, a little, some, I can't remember how he killed I mean, he strangled him. I know that there was something else to it, but at any rate, he killed this guy and then left him. And, and so the guards did not know for a whole day that the man was dead because he was like, they passed by his cell and he'd be talking to the corpse. Mm-hmm. And they'd be playing chess, you know, kind of thing. Was your so, involvement, did you, your original connection to him, was it one of, was it you doing in your life what you're talking about of connecting with people and giving these solutions, acting on it? And I, I think what got me into journalism was I just love telling stories. I just am blown away. Oh, and right. also the, yeah. the, the act, the process of telling stories, of interviewing people, it's, it is an uh, endlessly fascinating way to live. I wake up every day. I don't begrudge. I'm not bored. I'm not bitter. I wake up thrilled. So that is what got me uh, into it and kept me in it. And I don't even know what the hell I'd ever do if I didn't do this for a living. I mean, but then along the way, it, it became clear as I had several good editors, it became clear like the small steps. How do I get to being a better writer? I worked for four years in Stockton, California, covering crime. I wrote four or five stories a day. And that will make you a good writer, a clear writer, a solid, dependable, confident writer. If you do, and I did that for four years straight. It was great. Best job. That was like graduate school without having to be be a pay, go to go to school which is a to me halfway a waste of time if you know, uh, on the truth to me better better to find yourself a job where you're writing every day and i was seriously i mean i write and write and write and murders i covered 200 i've covered more homicides than anybody i know by quite a bit i mean by, like 200 plus and, I have to, <laughs> you probably covered more homicides than anyone i know i which would be as long as you've done one <laughs> yeah. that would be <laughs> But see that the and and but along with that, you know, I had this idea that I didn't want to just be a blood and guts guy. There's a great book by Calvin Trillin, the great New Yorker writer. Calvin Trillin wrote a book of his collected stories called Killings. And really, what the book is not—it it sounds gruesome, but it's not. It's a book about how people live. He he always he said in the book, and this was one of the things that motivated my career most certainly. He says the most important thing when you're writing about how a dead person is not how that person died. That might be like a paragraph or two, whatever. It's how the person lived. What story can you tell about the person while he or she was was alive? And and so. I turned every homicide and Stockton for those four years I was there into like mm-hmm. a, a time to tell a tale. And so I'll tell you one that I loved. There was this guy who had a beef in a bar in Stockton with some guy. And so he leaves the bar. The fellow follows him in his car. And the guy stops at a stoplight and the fellow pulls up next to him, shoots him and kills him. That was my story. And, and then uh, I go to, so, but I'm always saying you've got to find the family. You have to at least ask the family if they have anything to say about this person, because I don't want people murdered while I'm the crime reporter and not give them that opportunity. So I show up at the hospital where I, I guess he was still on life support at that time. He didn't, he wasn't quite dead yet. 
I tell the, and I see this family, I can, I'm pretty sure that this is the family. And I say, are you related to the guy's name? I don't even remember the guy's name anymore. And the son got very mad. Oh, you vultures from the media. And I'm like, stop, man. All I'm here is to do is to see if there's any story you want to tell about your dad. And, and that's it. I'm not here to make you cry. I don't do that. I just, and, and, the, and an uncle calmed him down. And so we had a long talk. Turns out the guy who had died or was dying at that time was known uh, not by his name, but by his stage name, which was Tijuana Elvis. T- he had done Tijuana Elvis, he had done Mexican or Spanish language, Elvis impersonations at baptisms and birthdays and marriage and weddings and first communions for years. Everybody knew Tijuana Elvis, certainly in the Mexican-American community in, in Stockton. And there he was murdered at a traffic light. And so my story became about this guy whose real name I do not remember. All I remember is his name was Tijuana Elvis. You find a story like that by going out and talking to folks who never have ever met a reporter. My favorite type of person to talk to is a person who has never met a reporter before. And I'm the first. And so that, that is because they will tell you the truth, the facts and the truth. You know, and to me, that's what I loved about that job. I, every homicide was an opportunity to tell a little bit of how people lived in the town. And so here's a Tijuana Elvis being gunned down at the traffic light. Everyone, oh, when we put it there, like people were like, oh man, he swung at my a photographer colleague said, I went to a birthday. I think it was, he told me, I went to a birthday and Tijuana Elvis was there, man. He, you know, he's like doing nothing but a hound dog in Spanish and that kind of stuff. And it was just, it's a way of, of understanding how to do the job that you learn along the way that I uh, was very fortunate, extraordinarily fortunate to be able to have these jobs and work with certain people who are very good at their jobs, photographers and editors mainly, and, and learn little by little. I know I'm not sure how we got off on all this, but. Well, I, I, well, I was asking about what it was like fascinating. So I'm with a, a triple murderer. And now in this case, when the guy says, oh, you media people, He's really saying, he's not saying, but letting out, there's something I want to tell, but I don't want to tell it. I want to tell it genuinely and authentically. See, like he thing, wouldn't say that if he had nothing to say, I would think. But, see, but it's also because so many people are used to the media being, what they mean really is TV. I'm not TV. I'm, I'm print. I don't sit around hoping people will cry and ganging up on, on, uh, bereaved parents and mothers and whatever. I don't do that. I don't, I've never done that. I don't find it pleasant or productive either for that matter, but certainly not pleasant. Not something I'm, I'm going to be like, I do go to press conferences with sheriffs and police chiefs and all that kind of stuff. And that's a big part of the job too, but I'm not there. What I'm there is to hear, sit him down, him and his uncle. They sat with me outside the hospital on a little bench and a guy told me, you know, I don't remember a lot of the details anymore. I have to go back and read the story to see what he told me. But once he came to a feeling that I was there as a person wanting to understand his dad and tell his dad's story in a more, just a more quiet or full, rather full is the word I'm looking for, a way, then that is great. He goes along with it. And that's, I've, I interviewed a woman, I had to search for her all day, who was the mother of a prostitute who was horribly murdered in, in, in Stockton. 
And she, this girl was on crack and she ended up hooking and all that. It was really bad. But the mother, I sat with her. I don't cry with people, but I also understand how to be around bereaved people mm-hmm. and to not be loud and, and that kind of thing. Be very interested in them. There's not an act. I am interested in them. And so it's just this process through which you come to understand how to get people to tell the story that they want to tell anyway, frequently. Sometimes people would slam the door in my face and that's fine. I don't get over that. But a lot of times you would be amazed at how people would want to talk about. Everybody wants to tell their story. That's my motto, boy. It's absolutely true. I still like to share my story. And yeah, I'm thinking from past generations. At first I was thinking, you you were making me think of Hemingway, but now it's, I'm thinking of Robert Caro and it's a... <laughs> <laughs> Linda Johnson tomes. Yeah, yeah, I haven't read them. I've only read The Power Broker, but I've oh, heard him talking oh, about yeah. going down okay. to Hill Country. And... Right. I'm ashamed to say I haven't read anything that guy's written. I maybe because it looks like each book is like a thousand pages, and I'm like, holy crap! I, I would love to read that. I should read The Power Broker. That was, sounds like a, just an amazing amount of reporting and just a, a fascinating character to write about. Yeah. All I know is I was like, what is this? It's on like, I'm in New York, so it's on everybody's shelf or not so much anymore. And I just like, was like, oh, what's it about? I just start looking at it. And a month later, I'm like, wow, that was really good. What happened to that month? Like, I just couldn't stop. It got shaped New York City, what it is today. I mean, it's incredible. And he did it like all alone. It was like the well, guy, the king. Yes. There's that part, but what you're talking about is the details, the inside, the, the like you were there. You, and Yeah, but to me, that's the essence of storytelling. If you don't have the details or the motor fuel, the details are, are what push the story along. And that's why I never stop having questions because I'm always, as I write, I start thinking, damn, man. What color were his shoes? I don't think I asked the person that. So I got to go back and ask him, what color were the shoes? Or what was the, what time of day was it? Was it twilight or midday or what do you, you know, all that kind of stuff. It'd be surprised. It becomes important. What were you watching when you, when, or where were you when this happened? That kind of thing. Um, how can you tell, sorry to interrupt, but how can you tell? You can put in details that's extraneous and you can put in detail that's how, what makes it essential versus extraneous. It becomes clear once you're telling the story and you don't know if if there are important details when you just are interviewing the person. It's when you start to write out the story, like what kind of like in the book, I write about um, Lou Hortensio doctor in West in Clarksburg, West Virginia, who got addicted to his own pain pills and ended up losing his license And then part of his recovery was he embraced publicly his recovery. First of all, that's important. Really, the most important part of his story was he was not hiding it. He, like so many people do, he's out there. And one of the jobs he had, this is a doctor who had served the town for 20, 30 years by then. It takes a job as a pizza guy, delivering pizza to the very patients who he used to care for in his clinic or in the hospital. And so... The, he drove around town in a little Subaru sedan. So I put that in there. He could, I could have said, yeah, he just drove around town in his car, but it was like this old Subaru saying, it seemed to me a little bit more like reflective of where he was headed, like to a simpler life 
not worried about BMWs and all that stuff. And of course, now he doesn't have the money for them anyway. So he's delivering pizza in an old Subaru. I wouldn't have been able to tell you. In fact, I had to call him up. I had to write him. And I actually texted him. And I said, man, what, what was the car you drove around when you're delivering pizza? He says, oh, we, I had this old Subaru. And I go, okay, fine. Bingo. Done. That kind of detail is so illuminating. And it's again, it's the small stuff. And you don't really know until you, you're about to write the story. Or you're writing the story, rather. What is good, but that or is important to use. But that's one of them. Um, and the, the details that this guy, this this triple life prisoner use when what does he how does he make the burrito that he's like asking the guy hey do you want the hot sauce do you want the chili cheese do you, you know and then how do you wrap it so it, it can go through a sewer and still be edible he told me the whole process you melt plastic around it then you wrote melt it again and you know and then you put it on a fishing line and send it up and, and anyway it's a long story but basically the little details like that are like mind-blowing so Man, at the end of last time, I was like, I can't wait to hear more. And I'm just utterly fascinated. And I came for the the passion I heard in your voice last time, and and not just your voice, but everything about the state Mm -hmm. of things in the least of us and in America. And now in the middle of writing my book myself is I had to indulge in in the storytelling and the fact check, not fact checking, but also fact gathering. Yes, relish it and luxuriate in it man that's that's so much fun and it's the opposite of have a structure there you know where it's going and then you can start going hey actually i need to know this and this and this little stuff over here and you know oh man i love that i just love it i think it's it's such a full rich experience available to anyone it's it's not costing you no and that's why i would teach the the students in my my writing workshops go back and ask your dad I can't remember now what question I told this one woman was writing a lot of stories about her old man who was a brasero, meaning a contracted laborer to come up in the fifties to work in the fields from Mexico in the, in the fields in, in the United States, lettuce and various things like that. And I can't remember, like, what kind of radio did he have? What was the brand of the radio? Find out what the brand of the radio was. Why? I think at the time I was just really trying to get her to train her to look for these little details that might help uh, tell the story. And she listened to the radio. Yeah, but it could have been like a little transistor that he bought with his first $10 in the United States. That's a different kind of radio. And mm-hmm. that kind of, so I don't, I can't remember what it was, but it, that, that idea of, of training yourself to ask, I was watching TV when, oh, I, I remember in The Least of Us, there's a woman who's horribly mind mangled due to the methamphetamine coming out of Mexico these days. She gets into sobriety, one of the very few I met that had achieved that actually for two years. But the first six months, she felt like completely stripped of personality. Like she couldn't feel anything for anybody. She was almost like a blank slate, like emotionless. And, and then one night she was watching a movie. She told me this, I was in with my roommate. I was, we're watching a movie. And for the first time I could kind of feel for people. It was for the characters in the movie. Well, of course, big question is what movie were you watching? And she goes, what movie was it? What made in Manhattan with Jennifer Lopez, a real bad, well, not bad. I don't want to cast judgments on people's tastes in movies, but a schmaltzy kind of rom-com kind of thing where she falls in love with a Senator or some damn thing. 
Like, and she was there and she said, I know. And all of a sudden I started crying first time in years, really two or three, four years, maybe that she had actually cried and she's crying for the, because she feels something for the character. She feels her brain beginning to slightly heal. What was the movie that did that made in Manhattan by with Jennifer Lopez? And I think it was, oh man, someone tell me Matthew. Ben Affleck? Affleck? I don't know. I can't, I can't remember who else was in the movie, but whatever the case, you can look it up. That was the kind of detail that really helps tell the story. She's watching Made in Manhattan. She's pouring down tears. You know, to me, that's like, a, there was no doubt I was going to ask her. The next question was going to be, what movie was that? And I remember she paused because her, her memory is not very good still because of the methamphetamine. And she goes, and then it came to her, made in Man- that's it, made in Manhattan. My roommate was watching it. I wander in. She's, I said, can I watch it with you? She said, sure. And within 15 minutes, I was crying. Beautiful moment in her life, realizing that she, there is some little, anyway, approach to healing her brain. So, Well, I wish we could go on. We're out of time. But I hope maybe when you know what your next project is to come back and share more. Sure. Absolutely, man. Love talking with you. It's been great. These last two, uh, two then questions I really have not <laughs> answered uh, or been, been posed uh, to me in, in the last few months. And I really appreciate it. And so keep on doing your work. Keep on plugging away in that book. Find the little details that tell the big story. And, and let me know when it comes out. I can't wait to read it. Sam, thank you very much. My pleasure, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.